Read along with me if you would, please. It says this. Every commandment in which I command you today must be you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you. Allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor your, did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your feet swell these 40 years. You shall know in your heart, or you should know in your heart, That as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, fountains and springs that flow from valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees, of pomegranates and of olive oil and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills are out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land in which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by keeping his commandments, his judgments, his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water and brought brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, My power and my might and my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Then it shall be, if by any means you by any means forget the Lord your God, And follow other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish. Because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. You pray with me, please. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, work now. Immerse me in your spirit, fill me to overflowing, God, that you would use me as your vessel and you would spray your love. You would hose us all over, Lord, flood and torrent over us with your love today, that we would get it. We would understand that we would know and we would watch you develop and speak to our hearts individually in the ways that we need to know. And Lord, that we today would have so much fun enjoying learning of you and your call in our lives, God, that we would hear your voice, that we would know you and love you more. So, Lord, have your way now, we pray. We commit this time to you and pray, Lord, that every word means something to us and drive us to that place where we need to be with you. So have your way, Lord. 
May we truly hear your voice speak to us today. May we, Lord, respond and enjoy you so much in this time and learn how to delight in your delight as we now seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. The Bible, your authority. No institution, no denomination, no group of scholars, but God himself. We are now in a text where God has been developing this, this prep talk, if you will. It's sort of the locker room talk. Deuteronomy, in essence, is the, you're about to take the land. Let's review where we've been so we cannot do that again. And then let's review or let's take a look at what's ahead of us so we don't do that either as the people that are there now. So in the same way, God, in essence, is speaking victory to his people. This is a game he knows they're going to win. This is a life that he knows they're going to flourish. And it's a place that he has for them, a place of abundance, a place of fruitfulness, a place of plenty. Not like anything they've ever known. For 430 years, they were slaves. Well, 400 years, they were slaves. 430 years in Egypt and now 40 years in the wilderness. And God reviews his faithfulness and their constant need for him through it. In our text here now, God turns them again with the idea ultimately of looking at the future. But with that, he must review the past. And the challenges will be simply threefold today, all out, all in, and all the time. That's what he shows us in this chapter. Look at it with me, starting in verse 1. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Notice the word every there. This is our stress. God knows that we have a natural tendency to pick and choose our yes and still pretend like God is the Lord of all. But he wants to be the Lord of all and demands to be the Lord of all or not Lord at all. We cannot choose which things we agree and disagree with and assume that God's going to bless that. The problem is every one of us are going to be tempted to do that. And the reason is that God's commandments, his challenges are going to be ones where we are going to intrinsically disagree with in our flesh. Because what God tells us ultimately is to deny ourselves, to leave ourselves behind to follow him, to make other people more important than ourselves, to make him more important than ourselves, to stop trying to figure out what's in it for me, to stop living an entitlement mindset. All of the things in the world around us are completely in opposition to what God is telling us here, which it starts with this. There is nothing that I say I'm going to change my mind on. So when the world starts to decide or a group of scholars start to decide or a group of quote-unquote theologians or higher critics start to decide which parts of Scripture they agree with and which parts they don't, as Scripture says, let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, if the entire world, every human being agreed, but God said otherwise, God would still be true. There is no majority vote here outside of him. He will always, always be true. And I've got to tell you, this is rough to start with. Because we can think we're doing so well, but I've learned this in music. That sometimes you could be so far by being so close. The worst thing you can do in music is to get almost to the note. It sounds awful. 
I mean, if you're nowhere near it, they might think it's a harmony. You get close to it, people realize you didn't get there. I had the privilege of watching that this week. There are specific trains, and perhaps you're familiar with these kind of things, where when you're kind of waiting for, you're in the underground, and you're waiting for a train, and you look up, and one of the first things I look to see is, how frequent are the trains coming? I mean, are they coming every five minutes? Are they coming every ten minutes? Are they coming every four minutes? The particular train I was waiting for was a train that came every minute to two minutes. Now, that tells me something right away. That is that if a train pulls up and it is really full of people, wait for the next one. It's a minute away. And if that one's full, by the third one, it's a pretty good chance. If they're all going to the same place, you just may actually get a seat or at least a better space. So I look and I watch the first one go by. It is full of people. Piece of cake. I'll wait. Second one pulls up and it is full as well. But there is a guy and you can hear him sometimes, right? You hear him coming down the steps. And you know that this guy is determined to catch that train. I don't know if he has a concept that another one's coming in another minute, but just the same. He is going to, I mean, he is knocking over older women. He is, you know, he kicks someone's, you know, uh, suitcase down. He is determined to get there. And because he had made such a big show of it, and because, I mean, he didn't look like the kind of guy that was like, you know, I don't know. He, he wasn't dressed like he was on his way to a wedding or his wife was having a baby. He was, you know, just a sort of a younger kid. Uh, and he was just kind of on his way. He had kind of made enemies with everybody on the way well he didn't make it in time but he was determined and so what happened is you heard that your heart starts to race right because you just kind of know how this is going to almost work out and there's i felt like a sportscaster in my head i don't know if you're like this but it's like oh it looks like he just might make let's just see here he's charging charging he's charging and it's like the door is closed and he is mid-air. And he is, and I kid you not, it looks like a ballet leap. His pants are back like this. He's like, ha, boom, hits that door for which then everybody starts to uproar because they were like, hallelujah, there is a Lord of justice, this guy, you know. And that gave him time to go and pick up the suitcase, help that gal down the steps, you know, the proper way or all that. But I just watched that and the Lord kind of spoke to me in that moment. He's like, how many times are you trying to bank on that? Where, you know, you're kind of like, well, okay, these are kind of the important ones because I intrinsically agree or those aren't necessarily my weaknesses. But these are areas where I know that my flesh is not going to agree with Scripture. And I'm going to kind of skip those couple steps and those kind of things. And every one of those things kind of makes it like somehow just the passion or the or just the, that I seem so sincere is going to get me on the train. But it didn't matter how sincere that guy was. He was not getting on the train. When the doors closed, they were closed. And at that particular point, he fell back. The good news is he hit with such a momentum, it bounced him back enough so he didn't fall in between the train and the tracks, which is good news. For which then, of course, the person who is speaking is now trying not to, trying to speak over his own laughter, and he's going, <laughs> I'm trying to step away from the train while it pulls, pulls away. <laughs> you know, that kind of, and I just kind of watched this, this whole situation, and here's the point of it. In all of our lives, we've probably been there at a point where we just felt like if we just meant it enough. And maybe if we're as children, I don't know what your relationship was with your family or what the situation was, but for some people, if you just sort of mean it enough and you play it up enough, maybe they'll kind of ease up. But the law is still the law. And what God is saying here in the first part of this is, listen, I need you all out. I need you all out of Egypt to follow me. I don't want any part of you still wanting the old life. I've got a whole new life, and that whole new life 
is going to be infinitely better than the old life you knew. It's not familiar. You won't be able to chart it out. It's going to be unpredictable. You can't write the script because you don't know it. But God says, I do. I live there. And I need you by faith to follow me all out. I want you all out following me. And to all out follow him means I need to all out surrender. And to all out surrender means I need to all out obey. I need to all out follow him. What he tells us isn't just do that. I am the Lord. He can do that. He said that several times, of course, in the book of Leviticus. Here, on the other hand, he actually tells us why. He says that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land. And he tells us here that there are things in the balance. Maybe you're the kind of person where you're kind of not all outing with God. You're kind of sort of working this timeshare thing. You're kind of working this thing sort of like God gets joint custody of you with you. And you're wondering why you're not flourishing. You're wondering why you're not fruitful. And you're wondering why you have no real hope in your future. You kind of look at the future with dread and it's another obligation, not another opportunity. It's like, oh, not another day to wake up and go through. And I say, perhaps the reason is you're just not all out. Now, I'm not here to beat you. I'm here to challenge you. And I'm here to challenge me, too. Because every commandment means every commandment. And what God says is, look it. If you did what I said, you'll never be sorry. You'll never be sorry for it. I've never had one moment where I look back and go, you know, dang it, I wish I hadn't obeyed the Lord because I'm sure it would have worked out much better for me if I hadn't. My question is to me, Tony, are you all out? In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to a man who we probably would think is a good guy. He's wealthy. He's very blessed financially. And from the religious leader's perspective, he's somebody to know because he's then influential. In the mindset of the religion of the day, that must be God's blessing because he seems to be wealthy, so that must be God's blessing. The guy must have God's favor. And he says, what do I need to do? What must I do to inherit? What do I have to do? And he says, this is the work of God. It isn't going to be about what you do, Holmes. This is a loose paraphrase. Don't just believe me. Search the scriptures yourself. Mark 10. It isn't about what you do. It's about what God does. And from that, I want you to respond by believing, by trusting. Let's take a look at the commandments. How are you doing with those? And he says, oh, I'm, I've done them all. Good. I'm, doing, I'm good. I mean, you want to look at this? I haven't committed adultery. I'm not stealing. I'm not coveting my neighbor's stuff. Why would I covet? Look at all the stuff I have. Look at how comfortable I am right now. And Jesus says, well, there's one thing you lack. You ever go to the doctor and you're like, there's something not right with me. I'm trying to give you the symptoms. And they start throwing out these things. And of course, they're simply trying to find the one place where the source is for this. I mean, the fact that the man came and asked Jesus tells us that in his soul, there's clearly still a vacancy. There's something still missing enough that he has to ask. I mean, he could have just said, hey, I'm cool. Obviously, I'm going to heaven. Look at how blessed I am. But clearly, he's looking and he's talking to Jesus because something still isn't right. Just like going to the doctor and you're going, you know, I don't know what it is, but something's just not right. Well, how are you on this? How is this happening? How is this happening? With all of those things, you kind of, you kind of, you kind of. 
But he says, there's only one thing you really lack. And what you really lack is you need to get rid of all of this. Give it to the poor. He didn't say, give it to me. He didn't say, throw it to my ministry, do a seed faith donation or anything of that sort. Because it wasn't about Jesus getting anything this guy had, except one thing. What Jesus says is, get rid of it all, give it to the poor, and then follow me. Now, I want you to realize something, please, before we move forward. Do you realize how profoundly rich and beautiful it is for the Lord to actually tell you, to encourage you, challenge you, or even invite you to follow him? I'm not talking about Jesus saying, you know, as if we were to come to Jesus and say, hey, am I covered? And Jesus is like, yeah, you're cool. You'll go to heaven. Yeah, yeah, okay, you're cool. You'll go to heaven. Like that was what this was about. But Jesus is like, I'm inviting you to more than that. I'm inviting you more than just to feel safe. I'm inviting you more than just, well, I'm not going to go to hell. I'm good. I'm inviting you to more than that. I'm inviting you to the most amazing adventure this universe is going to experience. And that is to follow me. To where? I'm not going to tell you or it won't be as much of an adventure. Besides, you wouldn't go if I told you. But what if he did tell us? To go where? To the leper. Nobody touches a leper. I'm going to. To the prostitute. To the prostitute? Yeah, but we're not going for the purpose of her services. We're going to go watch her made pure. Really? To the dead man. Well, we don't touch dead men. Well, don't worry. Once I touch him, he won't be dead anyways. So technically, he's only dead for a portion of the time. Follow me toe-to-toe to the religious leaders that seem to control everything like the mafia and watch me take them down. Follow me to the temple where I make a whip out of three cords and drive the money changers out. Who wants to volunteer for that? Oh, follow me to that place where they hand me over to Pilate. And he goes, Ectomo, look at the man. Here's your man. And to watch the people scream for a, well, for a robber and a killer, a murderer instead. Oh, follow me to the cross to the scourger's post and to the stipe as they nail me in. Follow me to the tomb. Well, then follow me up because that's only, that's only a stop. I'm not staying there. Who wants to follow me? Paul would talk about how he wants to know the power of God's resurrection. But what Paul understood is you can't have a resurrection without a death. You can't resurrect something that's not dead. And Paul knew that death was a thoroughfare. It was a threshold to a brand new life. And that's why he says it's required for us to lay down the life we once had because he's got a new one. And Jesus is looking at this man who from the world's perspective has it all, but from God's perspective could have it all. And all that was keeping was this one thing that looked like so much to him and so much to everyone else but God. What it tells us, what is highly esteemed by man is an abomination to God. Do you know what that means? And he's like, hey, um, I want you all out. You could actually do more than just feel like you're cool with God. You could walk with God. You could smell him and hear him and touch him and, and be a part of him. Wouldn't you like that? John, one of those beautiful twelve in his 90s, writes that which we have heard, which we have seen and which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
When John writes 1 John, he starts it by saying, do you realize I smelled and touched and heard and rubbed against and stared at and inspected God? And he says, I write this so you could have fellowship with me, that we could have this in common. I'd love for you to have that too. To not talk about God like he's an ideal or like he's a mindset or some guy that meant well 2,000 years ago, but a person like the religious leaders when they look at the John and, and Peter uh, and standing before him and they recognize that they're untrained and unschooled and the word idiotes is the Greek word. You could figure out what we get from that. And it says, but that they had just been with Jesus. Would that be enough for me? And the Lord is inviting you 2015 a scratch that'll start now, 2014 onward. He is inviting you on the adventure of a lifetime. The adventure to follow Him and watch Him. Watch Him turn water to wine. Watch Him raise the dead. Watch Him cleanse the leper. Watch Him make pure the woman that was sinful. Watch Him transform the universe and split time. And in all of that, all of that, He says, how would you like to be a part of it with me? To hand out the food to the 5,000 and then to the 4,000. Would you want to be a part of that? To draw the water out of the wash basins to hand it to the master of the ceremonies for the wedding. Would you like to be that? To be the one that says the master has need of it about the colt. Do you want to be that? The one who could say, Peter and I ran to the tomb, but I got there first. To be the one at the foot of the cross for Jesus to say, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. To be the one that dodged pieces of tiling as they fell from the roof because the paralytic got let down. Oh, don't worry, he won't be a paralytic for long. To be the one that helps the blind man up and say, Rise, the master is calling for you. Do you want to be that with me? I want you to be that with me. And he looks at this man and he says, all of this stuff you think you have right now is going to be worth nothing compared to this adventure I'm inviting you on. So let it go. I want you all out. Jesus is walking on the water. Peter says, Lord, if that's really you, command me to come out of the boat. All out, baby. Can you imagine if Peter was just like one foot in the water and one foot on the boat? I think Jesus would have let him go down quick. And in the balance is your flourishing. Those moments when I can say, as much as I know, Lord, there's no part of me you don't have. As much as I know, Lord, there's no part that is still in, resisting, in resistance to you. Your fruitfulness is in the, the balance of it, as this is the future. But most of the all-out, to be honest, has already been developed in the last chapter. When he says, when you move into the new land, spare nothing. You're there to change it. I want you all out of Egypt, and I don't want you to make the new place the new Egypt. Because you can do that, can't you? I can. Don't make this what you were. You should be better than you were by virtue of the fact you've been walking with me. I want this to be a new place now. Think of the greatest moment when you thought your walk was the greatest with Christ. And the Lord says, what if we made that the worst day here? I've got better. Verse 2 then moves us on to the second, from all out then to all in. And in an all in, he develops this now by telling us, by the way, about four different places, by the way, where we can see what it really means to let Christ all into my life. 
It tells me, by the way, and it's easy to remember, 1, 2, 3, 4, Matthew 12, 34, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's a very threatening and disturbing verse for me. And the reason is it doesn't say what's in your heart comes out of your mouth, but the overflow. In other words, for it to fall out of my mouth, there has to be an abundance of it. You ever have one of those moments where something falls out of your mouth and you're like, ooh, that was nasty. Where did that come from? God's like, I'm showing you your heart because you don't even know it right now. Interesting, but Jesus, on the other hand, when he speaks in John 14 about going to the Father, in verse 30 he says about the enemy, and he has nothing in me. Interesting, compared to Judas, who it says that had already had Satan put into his heart this betrayal. There's nothing that can wind up in your heart the enemy would throw at you that you don't allow. Note that there is nothing that will end up in your heart from the enemy that you don't allow. He can't sneak it in. He will have to get your permission. What reveals then whether Christ is all in? The first of the four, look at it with me, verse 3. So he humbled you and allowed you to hunger, fed you with manna which you did not know, nor your fathers knew. That he might make you know, and of course the text that Jesus quotes in Mark 4.4, 4, I'm sorry, Matthew 4.4 4 and Luke 4.4 4 as well. The man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The first thing, by the way, that will reveal whether Christ is all in is what I do with my craving. The word is see. They're all, they're all four start with a C, and it is craving. God says, I allowed you to crave. I allowed you to recognize the appetite. God wasn't there just to massage my feet and to just put a warm blanket on me and let me get soothed into heaven. He was there to allow me to recognize that I have genuine and real cravings. He placed within us cravings of importance and purpose, of fellowship, to be loved. Those are natural things that God placed in us for us to turn to him. And with each of those, when we become aware of those, at the moments we become aware of them, where do we turn and I'm being honest here. I need to feel important. Where do I turn? I want to feel love. Where do I turn? I want to feel like I have purpose in life. Where do I turn? I'm hungry for fellowship, to not feel alone. Where do I turn? And God allows those cravings to reveal to me whether Christ is all in. Because if Christ is all in, I'll know where to turn at those moments. I'll know when I feel lonely to turn out to turn to the Lord. Here's the danger, beloved. Those of you who are married know the easiest thing to do would be to turn to your spouse or your children. Those who have really close friends know that the easiest thing would be to turn to your friends. And not that you couldn't have those. The, the point is not to omit them or to exclude them. It's to get the craving met in Christ so you could be a blessing and not just a constant draw from those that you should be blessing. And he says, look at I let you hunger. I let you feel hunger. I let you know what it's like to crave so that you know that there's nothing in this world that's going to satisfy you but my word. Your word's going to do this to me? What do I have to do? Take this giant book and just keep reading it? Actually, yeah. You might be surprised how he meets you there. But I have learned that the more I'm in that book, the more that every appetite is fully met. Because there, I'm not just reading the book by itself, 
but rather meeting the God in the book. That's the point. In the case of Matthew 4, 4 and Luke 4, 4, Jesus hasn't fasted for 40 days and nights. And it tells us and he was hungry. And there might be a part of you that thinks, duh, 40 days, 40 nights, he's hungry. Yeah, I would have guessed that. But if any of you are familiar with any long periods of not eating, you might be familiar with the fact that after a certain period of time, your stomach shrinks and you lose the appetite. You no longer have the desire to eat. The problem is, sooner or later, your body will go into a crisis mode where it sends out really hardcore appetites on you because it's telling you, if you don't eat now, if you don't put something in the stomach, the stomach is going to eat itself. It will start to devour itself. And it's, there's a point of no return. And you can see some of those things with the bellies exploded. Now, there could be certain reasons for that as well, parasites and other things. But some of the reason is that your body now starts to turn on itself, and at which point it's irreversible. Jesus knows he's in a crisis situation here. He has been 40 days and 40 nights without food. But he has, listen, please hear me, he has committed himself to only taking what the Father gives him. Listen, he has committed himself to only taking what the Father gives him. He has entitled, he's entitled as a son to go and claim anything of the Father's, but he has chosen in his submission to not take it unless the Father gave it. So when the enemy comes to him, he comes to him right at that craving. Is there anything sinful about bread? Now, maybe for someone like Jenny or or Anna or or Lydia, maybe in the sense, not necessarily sinful. They're kind of, they're, they're, what is it, intolerant. They're intolerant people. But it doesn't make it a sin. But they're craving. And as they're craving, the enemy meets them at the craving and says, hey, so, if you really are the Son of God, so you're the Son of God? If you're the Son of God, aren't you free to the Father's pantry? If you're the Son of God, isn't everything of the Father's at yours, your disposal? That would be like talking to Shantae and saying, Oh, so you are, you're, you're Tony's daughter. Well, then you should have a free right to his credit card. You should be able to tap into that. Isn't that money yours anyways? Isn't it going to be yours anyways? <laughs> It'll probably be spent before she gets it, but just the same. Well, we'll talk it aside if we can. Here's the point. What the enemy is doing is the same thing he would do to every one of us in that craving. Aren't you tired of waiting for the Father to give you what you've been waiting for? Why don't you take matters into your own hands and just go and get it? So what are you, single? You're tired of waiting? So what are you, lonely? You're tired of waiting? What is the thing you're waiting for? I feel like I'm still floating around without purpose. Are you tired of waiting? And you're like, you know, and you know the enemy's quick there because he's the accuser of the brethren. And he says, hey, 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 aren't you tired of waiting? You realize you're in a crisis situation here. If you don't step into this, I mean, obviously the father's being negligent, isn't he? I mean, isn't this? I mean, imagine what the enemy's inferring. What he's inferring is that the father's child abuse, isn't he? Isn't he neglecting you? Don't you feel abandoned, neglected? How long have you been waiting? Interesting, as Jesus later on would say, if you ask your father for bread, will he give you a stone? I mean, if you ask for an egg, will he give you a scorpion? 
He says, if your earthly father, who is still evil like every other human being, knows how to give you good things, won't your father give you more than that? Isn't it interesting he would refer to that, even though here at this moment, he wants bread and all he has before him are stones. And Jesus then, to shut the enemy down at that craving, uses the same thing we need to. Man shall not live by bread alone. And here's the danger, beloved. Please hear me. At that moment, you can tunnel on your craving. Tunnel, in other words, there's nothing else in your life but that thing now. And you feel like, I can, I can probably live by this alone. And it's not going to be bread. It's not going to be a mate. It's not going to be a job. It's not going to be anything but what comes out of the mouth of God. And if God says yes, then that's what I'm going to live on. If he says no, I'm going to live on that. Don't tell me how God doesn't answer your prayers because he said no. That's an answer. But no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Maybe you're not getting it because it's just not good. Not right now. And he says he led you there. And here's the strangest thing. You were hungry. He led you hunger. And then as a result of that, guess what he did? He actually fed you with something that you had no idea. So much so that you literally called it manah, which means, what is it? You had to spend your whole life feasting on something that only, hear me, that only God could provide. What if you had developed a taste for manna? You couldn't go to any store for it. Even if you found an oasis, even if you wound up in a city, there was no more manna but what God gave you. And only it came only and uniquely from him. And that was the beauty, is that he took your most base hunger and then made it in a way so that only we could actually, only he could meet the need. Have you ever had those times where you felt lonely and then the Lord just met you right there and you realized nothing will ever compare to this? Those moments where you felt purposeless and then the Lord used you in such a way that you thought, man, nothing will ever compare to this. There's the idea. So let me ask you, right now, in a season of cravings, a day past panic Saturday, where everyone's still jumping out to try to get their last minute whatever's, what are you craving that you're not willing to let the Lord say no to? Or it's about me. Verse 4 tells us our second when he says, Your garments did not wear out, and you nor did your foot swell for these 40 years. The second is from craving to consistency. Consistency says that there will be no new fashions, no new food, no new freshness. Everything was fine with the same old. You've never needed a new outfit. Imagine somebody saying, hey, look at brown. It's the new brown. Hey, I like those sandals. How long have you had them? They're the same old sandals. Now, walking, if you've ever been in a place where the sand is so hot you feel the heat rise up from it, you get the idea of saying that your, foot, your feet have never swollen. Your whole body starts to feel like it's going to explode in your feet first. They wrap them in linen and then try to walk on that. That gets them for a period of time. But it gets to the place where you can't sit down because the sand's too hot. It becomes really, really rough. 
And he says, look at Sometimes just the day-to-day grind is going to test whether God's all in. Here's the interesting thing. And please hear me. Some of you will maybe connect with this more than others. Some of us were raised in a world of great drama. I mean, the drama was mom and dad. The drama was they weren't there or they were there. The drama was making it, making it for yourself. The drama was being a teen on the streets. The drama was, and you kind of know, it was the violence. It was the craziness. It was the drugs. It was the mayhem. It was just, and it wasn't anything that you could temper necessarily, a, a little bit at best. But it was crazy. And then the Lord brought you out of all of that. The constant worrying whether you had a disease. The wondering whether you were pregnant or you gotten someone pregnant. The wondering why someone was going to try to kill you or whether the drug you took was going to be bad and you were going to make it through that. The worry about the overdose or the worry about the person next to you that probably is going to overdose or did overdose. You know that world, some of you. And what happens is then you come into the world of the Lord and all of that stuff gets washed away and it's no longer there. And here's the crazy part. The only drama we're going to experience now, we have to create ourselves. And that becomes a crazy world for something where we're used to the whole world being a theater. So you can understand all of a sudden it seems confining and dull because it's not that anymore. There's no more being arrested anymore. There's no more warrants out for us. There's no more wondering whether we're pregnant. And if you are pregnant, it might be a great thing now. And you start going, oh man, same old clothes, same old shoes. Yeah, my feet aren't swelling, but I'm walking the same old sand and it's still hot. It's just not new. You know, when we're young, a hero is someone who can do something for a handful of seconds at the crucial moment. But as we get older, if you're anything like me, a hero now is somebody who does the same thing all the time. To just someone you can set your clock to. Because I've learned this from experience. It is infinitely harder to do the the same right thing over and over than it is to do that crucial moment thing. And I've kind of been a clinch person. There's someone they're going to dish the ball to. There's someone that they're going to say, well, give it to him at that moment or whatever. And some of some people excel, some people don't at the moment. Some people choke, some people don't. But when it comes to life, the consistency of life, well, that's another challenge to see whether Christ is all in or not. Because if he's all in and there isn't drama, well, actually, there's another word for that now, and that's peace. It's something we can underrate, but it's truly what God wants to give us. He really wants to give us peace. It's what we craved, by the way, when we were in the drama. And now that he took us out of it, we kind of miss the the garlics and the leek and all of those things of Egypt. And the whips. You can miss that bad relationship where you were screaming and yelling or feeling hopeless because you were most familiar with that. Now you're not arguing anymore. And now you agree and you're like, well, man, hate me for something or get angry or get jealous or something. Why? Because everybody else was. You're like, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to love you. Stop loving me. Be meaner. It's easier to deal with. God's like, I'm not going to do that. Consistency is something that's going to prove whether he's all in. Third, verse five. You should know that in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Oh, this is a fun one, isn't it? And the C is correction. Hey, who doesn't love a boss when he's signing your check? 
Who doesn't love a leader when they're leading you to something that blesses you, that makes your life more easy? But when they have to correct you, who enjoys that? Who volunteers for that? Scripture demands, by the way, for us to recognize that God will correct us because he's our father. And a father, by the way, who doesn't correct his children, hates his child is what Scripture says. Now, I've learned this, and please hear me. God will never steer with a sledgehammer if he, can stir, if he can turn you with a feather. God never uses excessive force. So if God can move you with a whisper, a still small voice will work. But if God has to yell, it's never pretty. And if you kind of get sledgehammered, you need it. When those moments come and I just get blindsided and I'm like, oh, God. Am I really at this moment that thick? It's like, yep. I know now not to ask. Listen to what Scripture says. Job. Remember him? Pretty rough situation for him in the beginning. In fact, through almost the entire text until the end. Job 5.17, he says, Blessed, behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, do not despise the chastening of the Almighty, for he bruises, but he will bind up. He wounds, but his hands make whole. Hey, there are some times where the bruise is necessary. If you have a bone that was fully, fully fractured and it starts to heal incorrectly, You may have to have it rebroken for it to properly heal. Nobody in their right mind volunteers for that kind of pain. But the promise that it could heal right would make a difference. I still to this day cannot lean to my left and breathe in in a certain way because of the cracked ribs I have from situations earlier in my life. And they healed incorrectly. You can feel the ridge. But, but the good news is, I don't live on my left side. And there are times where God will do this. And it will really prove whether Christ is all or not. Jeremiah is brought from a distance to watch a potter spin pot, not marijuana, clay. And as the man is raising this thing up, it's turning the wheel, it's turning as he does. Somehow when it appears as if Jeremiah is really brought into this thing, I would imagine if I were Jeremiah, I would assume that everything that God's about to do, metaphor or otherwise, is going to be to teach me. And all of a sudden, the man who's making this thing, and then if you've ever watched anybody make pottery, it's like it's really, it's like real smooth. It's almost like its own ballet. You know, and I'm not talking about like that, you know, the old ghost movie, you know, where the hands were around by Patrick Swayze. I'm talking about where somebody's, you know, when they're really forming this thing, there is a tenderness and a gentleness used in this thing. And it really can be very beautiful. And you watch this and the hands are raising the clay as the wheel is spinning. And the hands are gently moving and keeping everything consistent. And all of a sudden, bam, the guy starts pounding it again. And Jeremiah freaks and he kind of looks at God and he looks at him with this like disdain. Like, how dare he do that? That thing was so beautiful. It was like so, so tender and so loving and so, wow, that's beautiful. And then, bam, like that. And he's like, I don't get it. And God says, is it his clay? 
If it's his clay, don't you think he has a right to do with it when he wants to? What's clear is that the potter saw something that didn't work for him. Often what happens is there's a hole or a weakness in the way he's raising it up. He has to bring it back down again so that he can actually rise it properly. For us, we'd be like, you know what, my life's cool. Yeah, there's a couple holes and there's a couple thin spots. There's a couple places in my doctrine that are really weak. Or a couple practices in my life that really are kind of holy, but not holy in a good way. They've got holes through it. But, you know, it's okay because this thing's still kind of structurally sound. And the potter says, I have a right to go bam like this and put this thing back down and start over. Because somehow when I do that, this thing's going to be beautiful and structurally right. And that's what God says to Jeremiah. In Psalms, or let's say this in Proverbs 3.11, someone says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father. Listen to this, because this is the weird part. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Delights. Correcting a son whom he delights, perhaps maybe the only time you've ever been corrected is at a parent's anger. Well, then I get why this would be a rough verse to swallow. Certainly some of the most profound moments in my entire life have been moments where I've had to correct my children. They've certainly been the roughest. And even when you say, you know, it's like I'm going to correct you first. You need to know that's wrong. And then you need to know, as I'm reinforcing that, that you can agree this is wrong. Right now, if you do that again, here are your consequences. And then the rebellion in a child to go, well, I'm going to exactly do that to prove you. And then you having to respond. Hey, I'll never forget as long as I live the first time I had to correct my oldest. I don't want to say who because I don't want to embarrass her. Just a little child and don't do that. That's wrong. Can we agree that's wrong? If you do it again, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get a swat. And with broad face defiance, she did it, staring at me. So up she went over the knee in one swat. I had no idea how she would respond. But I didn't expect what she did. She stood there, turned and just raised her hands to me like this. I was so what I not expected. The moment she was just looking and saying, you, you still love me, right? Oh, I held her and cried. I'm just not going to even lie about it. Oh, I my eyes. It was allergies. I was allergic to the... But that moment really spoke to me in so many ways and still does. I got no delight in the correction, but so desperately wanted her behavior to change. And I get it. The Lord's like, you got to know that's me. I don't want to discipline you. I don't like what it does, but I know what it produces. And when it's the only way to produce it, I will do it because it's that important. As it says in Hebrews 12, listen to this. Hebrews 12, 5 says, Have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to his sons? You have. My son... Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For the Lord, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. Oh, what son is there which a father does not chasten? Hey, if you've like been without any form of correction, you might be a little concerned. 
Verse 8 says, but if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, well, then you're illegitimate and not even sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems joyful at the present. We can go, hallelujah, amen. But painful, nevertheless, and please hear me, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It will make you right. I get it. The Lord says of the seven churches in Revelation, the last of them, Laodicea, the church that had been comforted, one church had already been comforted to death, this one now well on its way, the lukewarm church of Laodicea, and it's to that church, Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Which takes us to our last of them which then is the all the time. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, verse 6, of the Lord, walk in his ways and fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, fountains and springs that flow from valleys and hills. We're used to water flowing from valleys. Those are called creeks or rivers. But from hills tells us that's that's mounting snow. The Galilee River, by the way, today, even to this day, the Sea of Galilee, is fed by three tributaries. So it's fairly easy to explain the Trinitary, the Trinity to people that live around Galilee. There's the Chaspani, there's the Banias, and there's that which melts from Mount Hermon. Three different places the snow melts or natural springs come, and the three of them meet together at the Sea of Galilee. And he says, you get, you're going to get all of them. There will be nothing that you'll be lacking here. Wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. The things you watched the wealthy in Egypt have that you've never been able to taste. You smelled it. I remind you, these people were slaves. They weren't just like indentured servants. These were genuine slaves. So you smelled things baking you never ate. You may have even served them. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. Oh, you know what it's like to starve. In which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and whose hills you can dig copper. And I can develop this archaeologically or topographically. But for the sake of clarity, let me move forward for the moment. When you're eaten and you're full, then please bless the Lord. Stop before you go even farther. Do you realize that we actually serve a blessable God? Do you see that there? Show me that in any other text. To bless means you can please and bring delight. Do you realize we serve a God that you can delight? That isn't just contractually overlooking humanity so he could judge in the end, but he actually wants to delight in his creation? If you could create one individual, a human being, what would you create them for? Think about it. Would you create them, if you were single, start with you, all y'all single folk out there, Would you create them just to be a mindless servant? Would you create them just to carry you around and peel your grapes and open up your your cans of soda? Would you create somebody that would make the choice to love you or could make the choice to love you? 
to hold your hand and to grow old with, to be your companion. If you could create one human being, what would you do with them? God says, I could, I did. I made you because I want to love you and I want you to love me back. And you can bless me. You can please me and cause me delight. Just love me. But when you're eating and you're full, you've built your houses, which tells us time has passed. And you dwell in them. Your herds and your flocks multiply. Your herds multiply. Your silver multiplies. Your gold multiplies. Everything you have is multiplied. You have seven big screen TVs and you don't even have seven rooms. And your heart is lifted up. And you forget. The fourth C, by the way, is comfort. Hey, maybe craving isn't the thing for you. Like maybe you actually feel, you feel tight with the Lord. Maybe even time and consistency isn't so bad. Or maybe even when God corrects you, you there's a part of you that's humble enough to say, all right, I realize you had to humble me. But what about comfort? He says, I want to warn you. There could be a point when you start declaring yourself a self-made man. And you realize that you think, well, I, I really don't need to follow God's commandments anymore. I don't really need to be tight with them because after all, look at I have everything. How long can you live on your own stuff, your own strength, your own, your own multitude of, of what's been increased? Verse 11 says, would you be careful when that happens? I know what's in the heart of a man and I know that comfort Okay, maybe in the beginning you were afraid, you were lonely, so you cried out to me. Maybe the city seemed so big, you were intimidated and you cried out to me. Maybe you weren't sure where the money was going to come from, so you cried out to me. Maybe you didn't feel like you had any friends, so you cried out to me. Maybe you weren't really sure whether they were going to let you into the program, but but you cried out to me. And now, you're in, you're solid, you've got your posse, you've got your routine. You know when you can club, you know when you can't, you know when you can do, and you know when you can't. Why do I need the Lord now? He's answered all of those things. Like he's a genie in a bottle. He says, look, at, please don't forget me at those moments. Can I warn you what happens? Can I remind you, by the way? I'm the one, verse 15 says, who led you, and I'm the one, verse 16, who fed you. And I'm the one who loves you. Verse 17 says, if you start forgetting, what will happen is you'll start thinking you did this. And you'll say in your heart, which means you may not say it to anyone else, but you think it. My power and my might have gained me all this. Because I want you to realize the only reason you have anything is because I gave it to you. Even the ability to do it. You're like, yeah, but I worked so hard. Yeah, but you had the ability to work so hard because he gave it to you. And this is how the chapter ends. He says in verse 19 and 20, it shall be. If you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify to you this day that you will surely perish. I want to warn you, here's the way it's simply stated. Forgetting is the footpath to forsaking. That's the point. The moment I start forgetting, I am well en route to forsaking. I'm a gift giver. It's kind of a natural thing, so don't give me permission or... I could be in trouble again. But no matter where I'm at, I'm always constantly getting things. Sometimes I, these days I have to consciously say no a lot. I just want my family to know that no matter where I go, they are never forgotten. 
And it's a text and it's an email. And it's a bringing back the shower caps for my hotel room. I know my kids aren't going to want those shower caps. They're one of the goofiest things. And maybe you're the kind that wears a shower cap in the shower. But I bring them back anyways. Because I want the kids to know that at least as weird as it is, in my hotel room, they're not forgotten. When I'm at any form of conference and they give me a badge, Shantae has a, a, a stack of them. Because every time I come back from when she gets it, I want you to know you've never been forgotten. I mean, these days it's a lot easier than it was 20 years ago because back then you couldn't email as easily. But I want my family to know, and I want you to know, as our church, you're never forgotten. That's the point. God knows the moment you start forgetting is the moment you start preparing yourself to forsake. And you see the guy or the girl, and they've been going out for quite a while, but they've been apart for a while now, and the girl meets some new guy, and the conversation breaks into it, and the boyfriend's no longer part of the conversation with this guy. And sooner or later, he gets forgotten intentionally, because she knows if she brings him into the picture, this whole dynamic's going to be very different. And she's well en route to forsaking him. And all everyone else around her can see it but her. And we do it with the Lord on a regular basis if we're not careful. We shrivel and we get silent. And he's no longer the first thing we turn to in the morning. It's the news now. It's no longer the Bible we'll turn to when we're on a train. Because there are other things. When things kind of get rough, we no longer turn to women in prayer. We'll call our friends. And the only time we get to God then is the same way that happens when the storm happened with the guys in the boat. We won't even turn to him until it seems like it's too late and we're just convinced that we're in peril. And at that point, our attitude is, why? Why would you let this happen? Don't you care? We're perishing. That's what the disciples said to Jesus. It's like, don't I care? I've been here the whole time. You have not, you have not once nudged me. And now you're going to come at me like that? Hear me, beloved. We're, we're now wrapping this up. It's Christmas season. And we can argue over when Jesus was really born. What's pretty clear is, is that he never sat down with his disciples and said, boys, whatever you do, make sure you celebrate my birthday. But he didn't tell us we couldn't. I see it as an opportunity for us to turn our hearts again to the Lord. But in the, in the Christmas, maybe you're one of those people that you have the kind of relationship where you would ask, hey, so what do you really want for Christmas? What would you really like? Another tie, another jumper. One of those ones, the new ones with the Santa belly. I don't know what guy in his right mind would buy that, but that's just me. I can get that on my own. What's the one thing that we should give him that doesn't come with a receipt? Oddly enough, it's the one thing he already owns. And that's us. Scripture says you were bought at a price. 
Christ redeemed, bought you back with his blood. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, you're already his. So can I actually just have what I'm already supposed to have? Um, When I taught secondary school, you know, there were kids that they were really, really sweet. And sometimes, you know, you get these presents around Christmas. And there was this family that uh, the girl kind of showed up and she's like, hey, I just want you to know I found this silk tie. I think it'll be really nice. I know you're required to wear ties two days a week. So I got you this tie. I'm like, oh, a tie. Thanks. It's really sweet. So the next time I was required to wear a tie, I wore it. And actually, strangely enough, I actually wore it around my neck that time around. That particular day, that particular girl also had a brother, and that brother was somebody on my basketball team that I was coaching. So I needed to go um, to his house and talk to him and his parents about some disciplinary issues. I showed up into the house, and the father was there, who was also a pastor, by the way. And as I walked into the house, the father said, as she was right, standing right next to him, Hey, I have a tie just like that. And she got really uncomfortable. That girl had reached into her dad's drawer, man, and pulled out a tie to give me. Never thinking I'd show up at their house. I'm like, hey, take it back. It's yours. No, no, no. She gave it as a gift. I'm like, yes, but it's rightly yours. You should have it. So I walk into a house like this, and this is the Lord's house. And the Lord says, hey, I have a David Birch just like that, I think. And David Birch says, Oh, yeah, well, this one's actually yours. Would you like it back? Well, what's up to you? Would you like to give it to me? And that's the choice David Birch needs to make today. That's the choice Dwayne needs to make today. And Natalie. And every one of us. Hey, I have a Bruno, like that, and he could say it right. I have a Sam Town. Thank you for having an easy name, Sam. I have a Sam Town like that. Just like that. Can I have that for Christmas? You know, if we if there's a part of me that thinks I would love to give God a Sam Town. Sam, I'm here, Sam. God's like, but you can't give me a Sam Town. But you can give me an Anthony Holiday. That's the only one you can give me. And so God says, look, here's what it is. I want you all out. If you want to give me something for Christmas, give me this. All out. All in. All the time. All out, I want you all out of Egypt. No more looking at the world and going, what can I take with me? All in, I want to be all in. I don't want there to be any part of me that, or any part of you that thinks, yeah, but not here. Not this part of my life. My identity, my purpose, my importance, my loneliness or whatever, my drive, my dreams, my weaknesses, my fears, my frailties. Because I want them all. I'm not, I'm not scared. I'll take them. Even if you don't want to admit it, I'll take them. It comes part and parcel with you. And I want it all the time. And say, oh, I surrender all, God, for this moment, because we're at church and that would be good. It's like, I want it all, all the time. Could you imagine if I said that to my wife when we stood at the altar? To love and to serve and to accept and forgive and encourage as Christ does on Mondays and Saturdays. She'd be like, uh, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. What? Lord, I... And we can't even say Sundays, can we? 
We're like, Lord, I, I just, I'll give you everything for the two hours. I mean, in churches, two hours? Are you kidding me? All right, Lord, you can have everything for, well, I'm going to show up late and leave early, but so you can have for at least an hour, you can have me completely. Because I'm really not doing anything else during that time. God's like, you do need to know that God's not like that. He's all in. He's all out. He's all in. He's all the time. And as we pray, beloved, God has a land of fruitfulness and flourishing, of vivacity that he wants to give you. I mean, beyond a script you can write. And he's going to do it in ways you can't even figure it out. It won't work out on the math. It won't work out in any other way. But somehow, when the day is done and the dust clears, it's all good. But you could fight him. I mean, you know who you're fighting, right? The one who's head over heels in love with you that actually knows everything about you and you can't even convince him away from that. You can fight that love. Why would you do that? But today in this room, I'm choosing to follow him. I'm giving him what he wants for Christmas. And he really wants a Pastor Tony holiday action figure. And I'm going to give it to him. You can make a choice on yours. Have you accepted that gift of Christ? Because he emptied himself of everything. He was all out of heaven to come here. He emptied himself of all that glory and all of that honor so that he could come in just like a human being, born like a helpless child, and be a servant of all. Suffering not only death, but death on the cross. He was all out. And he was all into us. It was never for any other reason, not for his own glory or fame, not for any selfish ambition other than this. We needed it, and he offered it. And he's still all the time. All he had to do was sin once, and this was over, and he never did. And I want to return in like manner. Will you pray with me, please? So, Lord, today here in this room, on this Sunday before Christmas, We want to turn our hearts to you and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Have us as you wish. Lord, we pray that you would today show us, Lord, if there's any area where we're not all out. Where there's something still trying to reach into Egypt. Show us, Lord, if there's any place where we don't want you all in. Or, Lord, somehow in all of this, There is something in our cravings that we're not letting hand over to you. Lord, please change that. There's something in our consistency that isn't handed over to you. Something, Lord, when you correct us that isn't handed over to you, that we're being proud. In our hot pursuit for comfort, Lord, we're not letting you be our comfort. Transform us, Lord, I pray, so that we could be all into you as you would be in us. And in that, Lord, I pray today that this would be more than just a momentary response. But Jesus, it's so much more than declaring you Savior. You were inviting us today to follow you, but for that to happen, we need to declare you Lord. And whether you've ever accepted the gift of Jesus Christ or not, 
invite you to join me in this prayer because the Bible says, if we're willing to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus or Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. So no matter where we start this right now, this prayer can unite every one of us. So we say, God, I'm a sinner like every other sinner. And you've paid that price on the cross. You've died for me. You completely left all of your glory in heaven to come here and pay the price and only take what the Father gave. And in his will, your mission was to die for us, to pay our price, and you did. Fully dying on the cross, as Scripture would promise, had promised, and raising again, just like Scripture had promised. So, having done that now, you offer us that 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 life of following you, not just accepting you, but following you. And we want to say yes. We say yes today, declaring you more than just our Savior, but our Lord, our risen, living Lord. And in doing so, Lord, we pray that we could follow you as you call us to. And to be the people, Lord, you want to make us fully out of Egypt, fully in where you have us, fully all the time. Make us completely yours. And this Christmas, may you get the one thing you really want, us, in Jesus' name. If you agree with that, I ask you to say, Amen.